And we're coming to you live from the Cannes Film Festival, 2017, the 70th annual award. John, have you been keeping up with the news? All the news out of Cannes? No, I haven't. I I didn't expect you to go along with this. Uh, this is that's the secret to improv. Just say no when you don't want to go any further. Just yep, no, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then we'll add a big applause. Exactly. <laughs> but John, I was wondering if you were up on the work of uh, yeah, y- y- um, <laughs> the guy who directed the Lobster, Yen Yen and Lapalus. <laughs> no, unfortunately, no. Or Ruben Ostland. <laughs> These are a lot of foreign-sounding names, and foreign things make me scared, so, yeah, I don't... I, <laughs> well, foreign to you. Oh, okay. Hello. If it's foreign to me, it should be foreign to everybody, okay? <laughs> Absolutely. Because you're a citizen of the world. You have a worldly perspective. Uh, sure. Yeah. Let's let's go with that. Well, it's interesting how the Cannes Film Festival is, is, a, is a showcase for the world's best filmmakers, but also the world's largest and seediest uh, film market. See, I would think San- Sundance is that. No, that's that's strictly that, for kind of American. Yeah, but cinema. that feels more like insidery, and that feels more like, oh, it's like what's getting sold at Sundance? Like, what's the big Oscar contender this year? I feel like Khan at least has a little bit more of the art house fare to it. Well, that yeah, that's what you see though. Oh, okay. Then the other half of it is T.J. Miller parasailing to promote the <laughs> the emoji movie. <laughs> is it any less dignified for when uh, Jerry Seinfeld, you know, rode down on a on a zip line in a giant bee costume? Uh, probably not. <laughs> exactly, but exactly. I mean, I don't know. That happened in the, the Halcyon days of 2007. Uh, simpler times in America, and we get the same thing in in on the south southern shores of France. So it's not like it's any more sophisticated <laughs> there. Fair enough. But yeah, just I, I don't get swept up in film festival politics and stuff like that. I know these are like if you're really paying attention to what's going to be big come in the fall, then maybe. But yeah. I just it's the same thing with the Oscars. Like you get invested into the Oscars and for me I'm just like, eh, shrug. A meh emoji, as it were. <laughs> Good one. Bring it up full circle. <laughs> yes. That's true. It's not it's not like it, inclusion in in the Cannes Film Festival or at Sundance is um is that is really indicative of a film's quality. Exactly. Obviously lots of great films have never screened at any festivals. Mm-hmm. Well John, after that and after that an enlightening discussion. Yes. <laughs> Perhaps we should get into the episode proper. Welcome. The Aspiring Snobs Podcast. I'm John. Yes. This is Greg. I, We're talking movies. I'm Greg. No, I'm Greg. No, you're John. I'm Greg. Oh, okay. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Again, we apologize in advance for any... If if our voices are indistinguishable. We are twins. But John, we're doing something different today, actually. Uh, okay. Because at the very end of the episode, usually we play coy, like we don't reveal what episodes, we're, what upcoming movies we're going to view. But at the end of the episode, we will actually reveal what we'll be watching next week. I know it seems hard to believe, but we do actually plan this in advance. So We do. <laughs> yes, from now on, we'll be telling you. I, that, that's stunning to a lot of people, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure. Giving you, you, our listener, a chance to watch the film along with us and maybe participate. Yes. But for this week, we sat down and we enjoyed the classic 80s romantic comedy, Working Girl. I'm going to include the song from Bob's Burgers. (laughs) Thank you.
Well, you know what's sad is mm-hmm. every time I think of Working Girl, all I can think of is Working Nine to Five, which is a completely different <laughs> '80s movie covering Absolutely. the same ground in very different way. <laughs> Pretty much. We should do Nine to Five for this one of these days. Uh, oh come let's, on! Let's hold off on yeah, '80s romantic comedies right. for just a bit. <laughs> you got your fill. Yeah, I think I feel like I've had my fill of romantic comedies actually because <sighs> this bears this bears a striking resemblance to another romantic comedy that we watched. 30 years older than Working Girl, and that was Roman Holiday. You know what? You're, I thought the same thing. I was getting the same mm-hmm. exact vibes. But it just shows mm-hmm. how, you know, formulaic the romantic comedy is, sadly. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. Mm-hmm. Because this isn't this isn't as... This is a romantic comedy, but it's also a uh, remake of a, fil- a film released one year prior, and that's the secret to my success. You're absolutely right. It's just gender flipped. <laughs> I didn't even think of yep. that. <laughs> You can't fool me, Hollywood. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the weird thing about these movies is, like, what's the ultimate lesson? Like, the only way you get to the top is through lies and deceit. And you'll eventually have to reveal the truth, but it'll all work out anyway. <laughs> yep. We should probably explain also that uh, in the late 80s, much like today, um, Hollywood was in dire straits creatively. Oh, <laughs> They were. <laughs> well, you know what the di- one of the biggest movies of the era was Jaws 4, The Revenge. <laughs> oh. But you know what advantage this movie has. Which is? One man, Mike Nichols. Absolutely. And I should say, if there's one if there's one area in which this movie stands out, is actually what a quality production it exactly. is. Exactly. <laughs> Even though it is kind of a ro- romantic comedy, uh, Mike Nichols does bring a lot of gravitas and kind of importance to it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Should we probably, like, summarize the plot? Because if you look at it, if you look at it from afar, you think, oh, that's just another typical romantic comedy, again, another... A situational comedy of somebody pretending to be who they're not. Yeah, so this movie centers around Melanie Griffith playing Tess McGill, and she's a low-level temp worker. She usually gets kind of bussed around from... She's from Staten Island. We, You know, the movie opens and we see... Staten Island. I, I like to call it Staten Island. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really think... I like to... Sta- yeah, I like Staten Island. You know, it sounds too formal for, you know, the people there. They're trash. Staten Island, so they really deserve that my respect. They're trash, so... <laughs> Well, yeah, I guess we'll get into the Staten Island stereotypes later, but yeah, you're right. Tess McGill is a is a temp worker. Mm-hmm. Um, she gets shuffled between job to job, and she winds up working under a, a very successful businesswoman played by Sigourney Weaver. She plays Catherine Parker. Yes, but when Catherine is laid up in a skiing accident, mm-hmm. she assumes a lot of Catherine's responsibilities, including some of the deal-making she's doing. And she discovers that an idea, idea that she originally gave Catherine she's actually stealing and claiming to be her own. Yes. So this obviously gives her free reign to basically take over and lie her way to the top. <laughs> well, it also includes partnering up um, in multiple ways. Hello. With Harrison Ford. As Jack Trainer. Yes. <laughs> Which is such great, a movie great name. Names. Jack Trainer. <laughs> names go a long way. in Going back to Shakespeare's days, <laughs> the right name could make all the difference in drama. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, in spite of all these shenanigans, it plays out. It actually plays out pretty plausibly. Um, yeah, and I think that goes back to back to the skill of Mike Nichols. Well, so he, a lot, his background comes in from a lot of director directing of theater, mm-hmm. and I feel like he's kind of the perfect person for this kind of material because it's, it's very talky. There's not a lot of complicated staging, so it it you know even though it's very pared down, it still works. And even though you know it's a bit of a farce. The way she kind of has to like lie and kind of complicate things, it doesn't feel too over the top. Well, t- yeah, two things. I was I was going to bring up his background in theater because that was one thing. 
that excelled to me. I think one thing that makes these films a classic, you actually look at what it all, what all their positive qualities are, mm-hmm. even the hidden ones, like from sound design or mm-hmm. special effects, like things you don't appreciate today. And in this film in particular, I thought it was the blocking, like the way characters move. Yeah, that's true. So the opening, yeah, the opening... Um, we see Tess McGill's commute, and it's a little exaggerated how everyone's literally shoulder to shoulder with each other in the lobby, mm-hmm. and she has to run down a, a trading floor <laughs> to her desk. But again, like the blocking, it, it really conveys the drama. And later, when she first meets um, uh, Kathy Parker, like there's a lot of good like blocking going on there. She's fitting like her ski boots and things like that, and mm-hmm. you know it's just a normal conversation between them. There's also the, but when you add those little elements of the way they move around the desk and even like the the view of New York Harbor behind it, it's very well staged and very well blocked. And again, not something you appreciate in, or at least don't doesn't call your attention in in an ordinary film. But here, mm-hmm. it just makes it even better. Well, the shot that kind of sticks out for me is the shot that introduces Catherine, you know, in the foreground. You oh, know, that too. We see her sitting down and all the. Um, Secretary's kind of like talking and chatting it up, and then we see in the ba- in the background the elevator opens and she gets off, and then everyone kind of like notices that she just gotten off, and everyone gets back to work, everyone gets back to their seats because they know what kind of woman, what kind of boss she is. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's very effective. Now you said it was a little farcical though. I'm yeah, because again, the the level of subterfuge she has to go through, um, t- uh, test that is, to kind of get to this position because. With Sigourney Weaver being laid out, you know, with a broken leg, she's like in Europe or something like that. Yeah, I'm. They never, yeah, they never really established that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They... Whether she's in the Alps or, mm-hmm. it look, it's it's clear they either filmed it in the Northeast or in the Rockies or something like that. <laughs> yeah, but again, it 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 put it's it's this simplistic idea of business where it's just like who's ever sitting in the corner office that must be the person in charge. Because really, she just starts answering Catherine's phone, and then all of a sudden making these deals, <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, I guess, well, I, earlier I goofed that this is a remake of The Secret of My Success, starring <laughs> Michael J. Fox. Um, I think there, it's designed to be a little more farcical. Mm-hmm. And again, the sitcom, when he has to like change wardrobe and pretend to be two different people in one thing. Yeah. Or, sorry, two different people at one party. Mm-hmm. Here, uh, again, we have kind of contrived situations wherein she has to she has to get access to a a big wig at a company through his daughter through the wedding of his daughter Mm -hmm. and so they have to crash the wedding yeah there's some implausibilities there but um overall i think what the movie's more hanging its hat on is women in the the idea of like women in the workplace yeah well it's kind of funny because in the beginning i think it does a good job kind of setting up the fact it there's two different scenarios which kind of shows her place in the world one within work, one without, one outside of work, where it's her birthday, her boyfriend throws her a surprise party, you know, she hasn't had a very good day, she's not really looking forward to it, and the present, he, uh, her boyfriend's played by Alec Baldwin, you know. Top, top flight cast, I guess we'll, yeah, we'll explain. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who's playing him kind of like a mook, you know. Yeah. Classic Italian. Alec Baldwin is a mook deep down. He wants, he wants to be a sophisticated guy, but he's not. Uh, yeah. He's Long Island trash. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing he gets it for her birthday is lingerie. So yeah, the idea I mean, is like it's a present for her, but it's really a present for him. Yeah, and then centered around the male gaze. Exactly. Well. And then at work, you know, she has a chance for maybe a higher promotion, you know, to get um, into a position that's better. But really, what it is is it's just like they're basically whoring her out. They're like, "Hey, meet with this guy. He's looking for like a new secretary." And it turns out it's also played by Kevin Spacey. 
again, top flight talent. Exactly. And, you know, he, like, invites him to a limo. He starts doing coke. He, you know, accidentally puts on a porno and is basically yeah. like, hey, you know, nudging. Like, clearly he's like, he just want. he's not really interested in her for her talent or her work ethic. He just wants to bang her. So, yeah. I, you know, I like the setup. And, you know, that's what makes it more interesting and a little deeper than, say, like, the secret to my success. Because, again, you have those gender politics. Yeah. The secret to my success also featuring a, a, a female in power, but it's more it's more of a caricature. Yeah. Of a of a of a shrew. Oh, she's a ball buster. A humorless, yeah, <laughs> humorless shrew. Um, whereas when we, yeah, you said, um, yeah, I mean these setups, but they're not they're not farcical. These first two no, setups, absolutely not. They're played completely no. straight. I mean they are humorous, but it's not like you know over the top. No. And I think, it, well, it also benefits when we have a, another top-flight actress in Sigourney Weaver. Exactly. Again, she could have come off as as the shrew. The way she's introduced, it looks like she's very exactly. intimidating. But she's actually... But in her first meeting, yeah, her first meeting with Tess, she's actually very warm. Mm-hmm. She's very nice. But yeah. it's because she's actually, deep down, a very conniving person. <laughs> Perfect. Everything's in place. For what? Man I've been seeing for a while. I think he's it. And I think this could be the weekend we decide. He said there was something very important he wanted to discuss with me. I think he's going to pop the question. You do? I think so. We're in the same city now. I've indicated that I'm receptive to an offer. I've cleared the month of June. And I am, after all, me. Well, what if he doesn't pop the question? (laughs) I really don't think that's a variable. Tess, you know, you don't get anywhere in this world by waiting for what you want to come to you. You make it happen. Watch me, Tess. Learn from me. You're right about that, and that was that was actually one question I was going to pose pose to you. Obviously, this movie's playing, uh, uh, the, even though it's it's kind of establishing well-trod territory in the in the kind of women in the workplace story or romantic comedy. Obviously, obviously, it has a lot of it has a, a lot of its mind about women, <laughs> and so I was going to ask: is, is this really a feminist story? Is this a story about women helping women? <sighs> See, that's the thing, and that's why I can't really give this movie like a huge hearty recommendation because, yeah, because uh, at the end, what is the lesson? You know, steal and lie your way to the top, <laughs> and even though the truth will win out you'll still get everything you want. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's not really a good moral, is it? And again, not really a feminist. She does prove herself. Mm-hmm. You know, she does get that advantage, but again, it's like only through lying was she able to get there. So I don't know. Like, what is it a positive message for women? I don't know. Not 100% completely. And again, she's no. still under the rule of men to kind of get there. Right. It, she requires, well, she requires a romantic interest in... That is true. Uh, Harrison Ford. Mm-hmm. That is true as well. Yeah. yeah. Guess, so it's not like guess, she got there by herself, you know. Yeah. I guess I was wrong. I guess I was wrong earlier. This isn't a, this isn't a less exaggerated version of The Secret to My Success because it, it hinges on the implausibility of Harrison Ford falling head over heels for Melanie Griffith. <laughs> okay, hold on. That's not fair. <laughs> That's not fair. I mean... In the meet cute that they have, it is kind of a little awkward. Again, that's where the uh, Roman holiday comparisons come in. She's going to this party and she takes a Valium before to like kind of calm her nerves, but the dosage is off, and so you know she has like one drink, like one dash of 
tequila and then all of a sudden she's like "Ah." and you know she can't communicate how she gets home so he has to take her home and treat her like a lady he doesn't take advantage but yeah Mm -hmm. it's creepy yeah it's It's not way creepier than yeah it's way creepier than (laughs) why did yeah why did screenwriters think this is like a cute way for a couple to meet (laughs) i i don't know i was trying to i was trying to parse that out in my head i think it's I think it's because the women is the crux of the or the driver of the jokes, mm-hmm. which doesn't happen enough. Yeah, because I guess women aren't aren't as funny. Aren't funny. <laughs> well, again, it's like it's meant to show him as chivalrous, but it's like you do that yeah, at the expense it, of the it, female yeah, character. It, it it serves two things. It makes the women it makes the women funny, mm-hmm. or it makes the women the the purveyor of the joke, but also the man looks chival- chivalrous. Yeah, exactly. So that's why you see it in in both Roman Holiday and in this movie, Working Girl. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But yeah, it's just awkward. Here, it just comes off as very, very weird. Exactly. Because he still undresses they, her. they wind up in the same bed. Yeah, and he undresses her. Yeah. And he, like, tries to, like, I had my eyes closed the whole time. Oh, yeah, like, that makes it okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I wouldn't trust, I wouldn't trust Harrison Ford to keep his eyes closed. Yeah, I mean, it is Harrison Ford, though. Like. <laughs> what, are you, what are you saying? Is he beyond pre- reproach? Uh, yeah. He can crash his plane into me any day. <laughs> Okay, so I want to talk about Harrison Ford, because mm-hmm. this was a weird experience for me, because either I'm used to seeing him in action roles, like Indiana Jones, Jack Ryan, Her- uh, yeah. Han Solo, mm-hmm. or if he is playing a dramatic role, he's playing it a little over the top and a little cartoonish. The most well, in, what, in what way cartoonish? The most recent example I can think of is 42. Oh, I see. So yeah, so he's playing... In 42, he plays Blanche... Blanche. He plays uh, Branch Ricky. Yeah. And, you know, he's chomping a on a cigar. GM. Given that, you know, old Brooklyn accent. Yeah, he's chomping on a cigar. He's chewing the scenery in that yeah. movie. Well, and then the other one I can think of where he's playing it straight is... Uh, have you ever? Do you remember that movie, Morning Glory? Yes. So that one, he's playing it a little more straight, but it's still kind of a caricature. It's a caricature of, like, an old-style newsman. Like an mm-hmm. Edward R. Murrow who's, like, forced to take this, like morning gig which is clearly beneath him Mm -hmm. so even though that's more of a straightforward generic role he's or not generic dramatic role he's still playing it like a little cartoonish like he's playing a type so i think it's weird because i'm not saying he doesn't have a huge range i'm just so used to seeing him in either or of these scenarios where here he's playing it right down the middle and i don't well i'll say i'll say he doesn't have a huge range (laughs) okay I just don't. Well, here, did you buy it? Because I didn't. Yeah. Not a hundred. No. Yeah. Here he's trying to be a charmer. Yeah. And and I guess here's here's he, there are some scenes where we see kind of the 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 requirements of the role really um, bounce up against Harrison Ford's limited acting skills. <laughs> and I don't mean that negatively. I love Harrison Ford as much as oh, of millions course. of other people around the world do. Yeah. He's America's sweetheart. But. Yeah, but it, but it requires him to be um, kind of more aloof. Mm-hmm. Like who I was really picturing who would be like perfect for this role is um, George Clooney today. That is absolutely true. Yeah, yeah, because he he has to be a charmer, but he also has to show like earnestness with his um, with his business dealings. Mm-hmm. Because later we see we see him charm Melanie Griffith and be chivalrous and they're meet cute together. Mm-hmm. But later we have to see him be a little uh, paranoid and scared in these in these scenarios where his career is on the line. Exactly, and he's depending on her to close these business deals. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and so that's we yeah. And so get... maybe maybe it's just the way the character's written. Yeah, and it's and it's very hard for a, a male actor to kind of convey the or flip between those two emotions, particularly like within this within scenes right next to each other. But it, at times it is weird. 
but I don't, I, and I'll, I'll lay that at the feet of either Harrison Ford's um, inability to play anything other than <laughs> angry or roguish. <laughs> Macho action star. Yeah. Well, I mean, he does. I mean, re- he does do because charming. really, John. You know what? Harrison Ford just wants to be a carpenter and a pilot. That's all he wants to be in life. He never, he never asked for this. He does, he does do charming very well. And there is one yeah. scene in particular, the wedding scene, which you mentioned earlier, where he does kind of get to play that because it almost does feel like a um, Indiana Jones kind of set piece, where you know they go to this wedding, which they're clearly not invited to, and they have to pretend like, oh, we're old friends, and you know. There's a moment where he accidentally, like, he chases her into the fe- in the w- women's bathroom, like, trying to convince her to leave, and so he hides in the stall. And then when the bride comes in crying, you know, he like steps out of the stall, is like, everything's perfect, everything's going great, you're spectacular, yeah. <laughs> and then has to like walk out. <laughs> yeah, it's that roguish shrug mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah, that charm. And so yeah, he does. He does get to. He does get to be charming. But yeah, I think it's when he. I think it's when he has to be really earnest towards the end. That is true. Yeah, when it gets serious. Yeah, because the business deal hinges on when, when Catherine Parker recovers and kind of takes over the business deal. Mm-hmm. There's a the, he has to make the decision: does he go along with the business deal, or does he stay true to his romance with Tess McGill? Exactly. And I think that's where that's where there's really disconnect. Mm-hmm. Um, because <laughs> God bless Tess McGill. I am not <laughs> I am not sacrificing my career for her. <sighs> I mean, she is from Stanton Island. <laughs> Stop saying Staten Island. Pronounce get it right. It's Stanton. I'm just pronouncing it like they pronounce it. A spaghetti. <laughs> no, no names. No business cards. No, you must know so and so. What is this? No resumes. Let's just meet like human beings for once. Well, it's nice to meet you, whatever your name is, but I really do have to go. Please, please, one drink. Okay, one drink. But I'm buying. Okay, but it's an open bar. Right, I knew that. I meant that if it wasn't, I would be buying. Yeah, uh, tequila gold. Tequila? Yeah, I promised myself that when we met, we'd drink tequila. No Chardonnay, no frog water. Real drinks. What did you think of Melanie Griffith's performance here? Um, it was okay. Um, I was bringing endorsement. <laughs> I was put that in the box. It was okay. <laughs> you know, it's a it's Melanie Griffith gives the okay performance <laughs> of a lifetime. <laughs> it's a romantic comedy, so it's like, what can you expect? It's it's a role that doesn't require a lot of heavy lifting, and I feel no. like the basis of the role is like she has to be a little hectic, she has to be a little frantic, you know, she has to be a little worried, but then eventually win the day. So it's like, at that baseline, yeah, she accomplishes that, but it's like it never goes beyond that. Which is kind of no, basically in summation of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's supposed to be the, the cipher for a working class woman who who makes her way, who kind of climbs her way in corporate America. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot much else to her. Exactly. Like, she doesn't have a, have a rich backstory or... Like stuff like like what's her family like? What are her parents like? You know, mm-hmm. did she have a traumatic incident that defines her life today? Yeah, exactly. I mean, all we know is her, is that she has a limited education. Mm-hmm. Her all her her friends in life is still in Staten Island, but yeah, she has ambitions to to. We, yeah, to we do know that she works very hard. Yes, but again, anything beyond that. But I saw on I saw on the IMDb trivia for this movie like how many women they considered how many actresses they considered for this role. Yeah. <laughs> and 
person I would have taken any of them over <laughs> Melanie Griffith, God bless her. Well the other thing too is she was apparently going through rehab at the same time. Or at least that like too. yeah, she was dealing with addiction to drugs and alcohol. So that could have also mm-hmm. affected the performance a bit. Yeah. I, I will say, I, I actually kind of appreciate this, and maybe I'm confronting my own sexist feelings about this, <laughs> but I do like that she's not she's not super attractive. Okay. Like, I can imagine them, them remaking this today, and it'd be like Natalie Portman or any actress, and she's under 25, weighs less than 110 pounds. Hmm. You know, has the most beautiful hair in the world, and all and all that. And I'll say, Melanie Griffith in this performance doesn't exactly, you know, doesn't exactly align with a with a with a phony Hollywood image. You're right. She does give a level of verisimilitude to it. You're right. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. Even though that was damning with fine praise there. <laughs> yeah. Like you're some prized pig. <laughs> I mean, this isn't about me. I just, you know. <laughs> You know, we don't we don't ask the umpires in ba- in Major League Baseball to get up there and hit. All right, they're just gonna call the balls and strikes. That's all I do. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, but yeah, if only. I mean, would you? Could you write more, like to to add a little more to Tess McGill's character? Because now that I think about it, like she's not even top build in the movie. No, she's not. Harrison Ford is the top build, I believe. Yeah. Even though he doesn't and... even show up until like half an hour in. Yeah. And then Sigourney Weaver, who's definitely a bigger star, but she also she also leaves the movie for like half an hour as well. Yes. Once she you know breaks her leg, she's laid out. So just yeah, just long enough for you to forget about her <laughs> until she comes back into the plot. Exactly. But I think she does give the best performance in the whole movie. Uh, Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, because she has that yeah, I, she has I, that I, level of you know connivingness to her. Well, uh, th- th- well, I wouldn't say connivingness. Initially, there's a warmth there. Yeah, I think there is. And if we're talking about her duplicity, actually, when she when she first comes back to the office, she says like um, she actually does like explain her way out of out of the situation. Say like, oh, I didn't steal your idea. Like I was gonna, you saw it in the message. That was me just passing along, and I was going to mention you. Exactly. Yeah. And I actually believed her. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that would have made the story a little more interesting, if like mm-hmm. you know we wouldn't. F- the whole idea is that you know we're supposed to side with Tess. So that the betrayal that she betrays Catherine doesn't feel as bad because we know Catherine betrayed her first. But if it was yeah. based on a misunderstanding where it's like, oh, Catherine really was on my side this whole time and I betrayed her for no reason, that might actually make it more interesting. That would make it more interesting and it would make it more, I think, of a, of a feminist. Um, <laughs> exactly. A complicated feminist tale. Because feminism is complicated and is it... Is it about women helping each other or women selfishly pursuing, you know, the the top echelons of society and toppling a patriarchy, mm-hmm. regardless of anybody else around them, man or woman? Well, and again, that's how Catherine tries to sell it when she gets this idea from Tess. She tries to mm-hmm. sell it on the fact that it's like, bring your ideas to me, you know. We're all in the same boat. We're all helping each other out. Yeah. So it's like maybe she was like maybe she was trying to sell that like that idea together. I don't know. I like. I just think it would have been more interesting if, or if the movie would have made it a little more complex. If you know, Sigourney Weaver really was interested in kind of a rising tide lifts all boats, helping each other out like she promised, yeah. instead of just like you know straightforward backstabbing you know woman and vapid. Certainly... She she plays it very vapid. Well, no, I. Well, this yeah, it would. You're right. It definitely would have added more nuance. Mm-hmm. But I I disagree that it's vapid because at the very end, what I did like is. How, it, in spite of Catherine, Catherine Parker's character being kind of conniving and a sniveling villain, at the very end, when, it, when obviously the deal won't, will take place, you know, out of her hands, she, she's actually, she actually appears very sympathetically to me. 
You think so? Yeah. See, I was just I just saw so that. So I'm, speak, I'm speaking at the very end. They take two different elevators up. You know. See, I thought who's th- going to close the deal? No, and, no, um, that was just comeuppance. That was just like, yeah, Tess wins the day. Yeah. You think so? Okay. I don't think that was... I'm thinking. I'm thinking of that close up of, of Sigourney Weaver's face, and she she's looking back between um, Mr. Trask, the big boss, who's the, who they're going to make the deal with, mm-hmm. and Tess, and kind of and it's not. I can I can see like a, in a lesser movie, the villain getting huffy, like Mr. Potter or something like that. Like I I won't I won't stand for this. Instead, she's more. It's a situation like out of her control, and um, and she doesn't react out of anger, and actually that I appreciated. I guess. I guess. Again, I can see in a lesser movie, like a villain, like it, you have less sympathy for the end. But when she walks away, she's not angry, and she sees what a that she's been defeated. But I feel kind of sympathetic for her in that moment. But you didn't. No. Again, I thought this <laughs> the again typical romantic comedy where it's like, because again, like leading up to that elevator scene, she's like, "Oh, come on, Mister Trask, you don't honestly believe these people." You know, she's playing it like you know the high school bully bitch, like. <laughs> Again, she like eventually kind of lost all nuance towards the end. I felt like, at least comparatively well, those, speaking, those to initial the scenes for yeah, yeah. There's one scene she bursts into a meeting on her crutches. Exactly, and you know, um, that's like, that's this woman is most, an imposter. You know, yeah, like that. That's kinda. definitely the most hyperbolic scene. But I'm talking about at the very end, they're on the floor, mm-hmm. and again, she walks away and. I guess I'll, I'll show a screenshot, John. There's something. There's something in Sigourney Weaver's eyes. Well, yeah, because she's an amazing, amazing actress. Absolutely. That's why. Yeah, so I think it's I think it's the actor contributing to the story. You're right. Again, a but lesser, I mean, a lesser the script story is doing her had... no favors. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but she's elevating it, John. Okay. She can. She has that power that she can elevate it herself, even when she's not getting favors from the script or the director or anything like that. Hmm. Well, maybe that was that close up was a favor from the director. Is like, you know what? She's selling this moment. Give her a close up. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Lord Absolutely. knows we can't give Tess any more close-ups. <laughs> Mike Nichols, you know, <laughs> chomped on his cigar and said, give, give that doll face a close-up. <laughs> ah! <laughs> She's going to be big one day. She's going to be in pictures. <laughs> the broad stays in the picture. <laughs> you don't got to do those alien movies no more. <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> little did he know. Well. <laughs> ten years, ten, fifteen years later. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> how creatively bankrupt Hollywood would be then, too. <laughs> We really don't have any more time for fairy tales. Well, Miss Parker, let me ask you a question. How did you come up with the idea for Trask to buy up Metro? How did I, uh... Well, let's see, the, um... The impulse. What led you to put the two together? Well, you know, I would have to check my files. I can't recall exactly the, um... Well, generally. It's not as if it was in the mainstream. You know, it would have to be the, um... Jack, help me out here. Warren, I beg your pardon, but if... If you are insinuating... Miss Parker, if I were you, I'd go to your office and take a long, last look around. Because in about five minutes... I'm going to see to it that you get the boot, but good. Orin, this is a simple misunderstanding, and I... You cannot... I can, and I will. Now get your... What did you call it? Bony ass. ass. Right. Bony ass out of my sight. I think I think it, it, it shows what a tribute... Uh, or, um, it just shows the, the, the level of skill that Mike Nichols, Sigourney Weaver... 
Harrison Ford in this top flight cast can mm-hmm. can pull out what what an ordinary romantic comedy would be and and elevate it somewhat. Exactly. It's not a classic, I don't think, but no, I would agree. But I mean, the other interesting thing is like you're talking about top notch cast again. We even mentioned like all the little bit parts played by people who are now you know you've got Alec Baldwin. <laughs> yes, let's Kevin run Spacey. let's run him down, John. You've got Alec Baldwin as her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. You've got Kevin Spacey as the executive that tries to sex her. Yes, um, you've got Oliver Platt. Yep, as one as of her them. first first jerk of a boss. Mm-hmm. There's it, actually two, which now makes me wonder what happened to the other guy. Exactly. <laughs> what is uh, what does she type into the little machine? Um, it's like a ti- that they have. <laughs> yeah, that they have tiny penises. <laughs> he's a tiny dick's pimp. Yeah. Oh, that's it. Yes, he's a pimp too. <laughs> you got Olivia du- uh, Olympia Dukakis. The, where was she again? Uh, I can't remember. She had a yeah. It's like a cameo. Yeah, and then you had Joan Cusack as her best friend. Oscar nominated for this role. <laughs> Can you believe that? You're, She's on screen for like two minutes. <laughs> and she has like one funny scene where she's playing Tess's secretary. Yeah, and she does the classic. And gives a little like, lip. And Would you like, like yeah. anything? Coffee? Tea? Me? Yeah. <laughs> Again, yeah, it's funny, yeah, but it shows you what Dire Straits 1998 was in cinema. <laughs> 1988, excuse me. And again... Like, going to her role, Joan Crawford's role, or, sorry, Joan, <laughs> Joan Crawford's, Crawford, yeah. Joan Cusack's role. Mm-hmm. Like, again, you can't really call this a feminist movie with her in the picture, because her whole role, her whole purpose is to be like, see what it looks like when you give up? <laughs> like, she's fine being a temp. She's fine just marrying the first man she meets and, like, having that domestic life. Yes, and also a, a real... If you want to talk about unnuanced portrayals in this movie, like a real Staten Island stereotype. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, all the guys in this movie are Staten Island. <laughs> yeah, the guys are. Some of the women are with their enormous hair, mm-hmm. pounds they're, of eyeshadow on. Their jewelry, it's, their jingly yeah. jangly bracelets. I guess we should talk about the color of this movie too. How do you? Because this is something I know I noticed. Um, when they when um, Tess McGill and her friend get off the ferry, mm-hmm. they're obviously dolled up with their giant hair. Mm-hmm. And their jangly jewelry and all this other stuff. And when we when we were introduced to Catherine Parker, she's in a gray pantsuit mm-hmm. in a white office. And then eventually, like um, Tess McGill's wardrobe changes. And at the end of the movie, when she gets her promotion, she gets the corner office, and she's calling her friend, celebrating. Now she's in a gray pantsuit in a gray world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And when you talk about like nuance, I could have thought like. How, like, how about this? How about she she works her way up in the corporate world, but she kind of maintains... You can see she's maintaining her Staten Island identity or her roots through her wardrobe. Like, she is wearing more colorful stuff compared to the gray corporate world around her. Well, I mean, wardrobe definitely is an important theme in the movie because, remember, we get that initial scene of what she's picking out to wear before she goes to that party to meet Jack Trainer. Yes. She's like... I think she's raiding Sigourney Weaver's closet. Mm-hmm. And she's, you know, picking something out, and Joan Cusack is like, no, 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 something fancier, something that the men will like. And she instead decides to go with this nice kind of classic dress. She says simple, elegant, yeah. Mm-hmm. And when she actually does meet Jack Trainer, the first comment he has is like, I like that you wore something that you wanted to wear, not something you think we would want to see you wear. Yeah. So, yeah. But then again, it's it's on a story level, it's another woman's clothes. <laughs> exactly, but at the end of the day, it's still all about what the women decide to wear. <laughs> yeah. So, this this movie's feminist bona fides, I don't think is really up there. No. Or uh, maybe not as maybe not as nuanced as we'd like it. Yeah. 
again, yeah, if we, we don't generally assign letter grades, but it looks like we're kind of in the same spot here. Yeah. It's like a like a solid effort, but not a, I mean not a, not a terrible romantic comedy. Obviously, a, a good romantic comedy by those sta- by <laughs> genre standards. But <laughs> well, and again, and, and you're right. It, as a romantic comedy, I don't think it has enough to say about how men and women relate. Like one of the best romantic comedies from the '80s is When Harry Met Sally, mm-hmm. because that has a very strong thesis about. I mean, this one's really more about women and their relationship to the workplace. But again, like going back to the like, what is the ultimate message? Like lie, connive, and steal your way to the top, <laughs> and it all works well, out. Well, yeah, they're 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 kind of playing different games though. Yeah. When Harry Met Sally is about aloof Upper East Side people, <laughs> very comfortable in their life. This is a, a working girl is more about a woman starting on the bottom floor, working her way to the top. It's kind of yeah. they're kind of playing two different games here. Mm-hmm. And this one so is so when Harry Met Sally can be more effuse and you know. And it's definitely not erudite and can can elucidate on these ideas about men and women relating to each other. Yeah, and when Harry Met Sally isn't playing up the fantasy, this is definitely at the end of the day, this is a fantasy. Yeah, it's like she all worked, romantic comedies are in a way. Yeah, I mean, well, Harry Met Sally, is, I feel like part of the reason why that movie works so well is because it's not playing up the fantasy. It's like again, like that relationship takes years. You're you right. know, it's not like overnight they're in love. And no. it's just like they get married and everything works out. You know, this is a, it's a relationship that's built through the years and we kind of see it flourish. As opposed to this, it's like they meet cute, they fall in, madly in love. And, you know, he's like, oh, I'm seeing somebody else, but, you know, I want to really be with you. Mm-hmm. And uh, who does it turn out to be? <laughs> Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Record scratch. We didn't even mention that plot point. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, A for effort. Yeah, <laughs> I know great effort, bro. Oh, yeah, that's right. You a don't. great end results, and yep. um, all about the yeah, bottom the end line. Results is a is a solid effort, a solid okay, it, an okay emoji. How about that? <laughs> we're just gonna we're we're not even gonna do a podcast anymore. We're just gonna deliver through emojis from now on. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're just gonna tweet emojis. Yep, modern world's hieroglyphics. Yep, would <laughs> be fascinating. Maybe that's what I'll do if I if we have time travel. I'll go two thousand years in the future and see. And look at aliens trying to decipher emojis. <laughs> like we were trying to decipher Egyptian hieroglyphics. Yep. This is great. I'm, I'm going to get on that time machine. Because <laughs> that's the reason why you'd want to invent a time machine. Absolutely. <laughs> that's the one and only reason. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry if you want to kill Hitler or whatever. <laughs> John, don't head to that Twitter machine just yet. Oh no, it's not the time. First, no, we must do Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. Spotlight tonight. Gonna go out, gonna, gonna go get, out, some, get food. some food. <laughs> and the Spotlight, the music of Bob's Burgers. I can't get enough of it. I know you don't, you're, you're not as enamored with it as I am. But no. When are you gonna Spotlight Bob's Burgers, Greg? 
Come on. Because, John, it's a known thing. People know about Bob's Burgers. It's bro- it's, it's on broadcast television. <laughs> it's been on for seven years. <laughs> I know. I want to I shine a spotlight on smaller things. Okay. And one of those things today is actually relates to the Cannes Film Festival. Ooh. Because they awarded the Palme d'Or to a movie called The Square, mm-hmm. which is directed by a Swedish director named Ruben Ostland. And I've only seen one of his movies, and it's, it was actually kind of a hit here in the United States, and it was called Force Majeure. Ah. You've heard of this movie, right? Yeah. I mean, I, it's one of those movies that's been on my Netflix queue for ages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just never gotten around to it, because, yes. reading. Well, there is, some, there's, there is some English in it, John. Okay, good. So don't worry about that. It's about a uh, Swedish family on vacation in the Swiss Alps, and uh, there is one harrowing moment where the husband acts a little cowardly, cowardously. Okay. Is that even a word, cowardously? <laughs> sure, why not? Yeah. <laughs> he acts as if he were a coward. Yes. <laughs> he, he, he conveys the traits of a, of a coward. <laughs> we're getting... He demonstrates, he demonstrates the traits of a coward. <laughs> we're getting very Marion Webster here. <laughs> yeah. In any event, it throws the whole family into flux, and actually the, the friends they make on, a, on this vacation, it throws their relationship into, into flux. So it's kind, of, it's kind of a neat little familial drama going on mm-hmm. as well as as well as being a comedy again it being a it being a european film a little droll you know not exactly gut busting but it's a great little portrait into this little town and extremely well directed in terms of the performances but also the setting itself as its own uh how that contributes to the story mm-hmm. like in this giant in this giant swiss resort with all the balconies and the bus trips and the ski lifts and all that all that stuff it's it's just a it's just a wonderfully well produced movie mm. In addition to being an interesting story about um, this fa- this family kind of falling apart. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I but mean, don't worry, I've, but I've heard John, a lot don't, of good. I don't want to. I don't want to spoil it. Uh, it's maybe shut yours off for the next thirty seconds, but it does end affirmatively, which is why you keep hearing news about U.S. studios wanting to remake it. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I mean, so d- don't worry. So don't worry, John. It doesn't. It doesn't end with everyone dying or jumping <laughs> out of windows or, you know, saying life is meaningless. <laughs> As all European films must. Yeah. Um, I've heard I've heard a lot of good things from critics, but from the general audience that I've I've heard things from, they they say it's kind of repetitive, or at least like you know it proves its thesis in the first fifteen minutes, and then it's just kind of like it just repeats itself over and over again. Or at least well, that's I, one of the kind of criticisms I heard. About yeah. It. Well, not repeats itself, but the pacing is a little slack. Yeah. It 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 has what I call I I mean this as a compliment but I know it's a, it's a demerit to everybody else but it takes place at kind of the pace of life. Okay. So these scenes kind of play out in kind of kind of long form and you're right redundant because um they they don't they don't exactly like it's 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 not a roller coaster thrill ride it doesn't like lead one scene doesn't lead to the next and doesn't have a whole lot of forward momentum until that until that kind of turning point in the middle happens okay so i can understand um some audiences aversions to that especially in light of critics like me who <laughs> adore this film and give it unexpected gifts and back massages yeah. and things like that <laughs> you creep yeah <laughs> You're no better than Harrison Ford. No, I'm I'm romantic. <laughs> Don't you get it? I'm chivalrous. Yeah. <laughs> Invite me to the women's only screening of Wonder Woman. Come on. Let me white knight you. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't want to mansplain, but I just referred to um, an event you may have heard of. But there was a pre-release uh, screening of Wonder Woman. And they only... John, stop me anytime. <laughs> okay. 
Well, I was going to say, this whole podcast, we've been talking about feminism as if we're experts. So. <laughs> Are you kidding, John? We're absolutely experts. You're right. <laughs> Allow us to mansplain feminism yes. to you. We took, a, we took a, one semester in college <laughs> on philosophy. We're pretty much experts. We have bachelor's degrees. <laughs> Hear that, ladies? We're confirmed bachelors. Mm-hmm. Yep. By the way, congratulations to the class of 2017. Good luck out there, kids. <laughs> What do you have for Spotlight, bro? Uh, see, I was going to spotlight something, but I think that might be a future episode. So oh, that's really? why I'm like, yeah, it's another Mike Nichols film, but I think we might end up doing it for an episode, so I kind of want to hold off. Okay. Well, Instead, I'm just going to talk about... You're going to leave me in suspense? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you off, Mike. Anyway. Okay. Um, instead, I'm just going to talk about a TV show that I've been binging this week, Angie Tribeca. <laughs> Didn't I spotlight that in an old episode? Or? I don't think so. Okay. You've been, you, uh, well, when we talked about it before, you seemed kind of lukewarm to it. You were like, it's a little too aloof. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's vapor. It's air. Yeah. <laughs> In an era of peak TV. Like, <laughs> to surmise the show, it's basically. It stands out, yeah, it stands out like candy on a, <laughs> yeah, on a, at a, uh, on a platter of a, at a five star restaurant. <laughs> uh, to summarize, it's basically a remake of Police Squad. It is a, it is a absurd comedy basically spoofing traditional cop shows procedurals mm-hmm. and uh if you know anything absurdly yeah. yeah if you know anything about the zucker brothers and their kind of work on airplane and the naked gun it's basically just that it is a you know a straight-faced police procedural with absurd jokes and bad pun-based humor <laughs> um the sergeant well, the sergeant John, will call, as if there is such a thing <laughs> the sergeant will call him and say like grab a seat and they'll, they'll both just lift up their chairs mm-hmm. and as they're all huddling out all right guys hands in everyone throws in disembodied hands into the middle of the desk <laughs> yeah <laughs> so there's another one like uh to later they throw a newspaper on the desk like what's this <laughs> oh it's a newspaper it's how people got their news before 2008 <laughs> yes <laughs> so again it's it's poking fun at police procedurals um for instance, whenever they go on undercover, the K9 unit comes through and they dress up the K9 as, you know, an actual like person. Yeah. <laughs> if they're undercover at a restaurant, the dog will be dressed as chef, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So it's just it's absolutely absurd. It's a joke a minute farce. It's and I just love it to death. <laughs> well, it's a, it definitely aligns with our sense of humor. Exactly. Yeah. So I know it's not for everyone, but I'd say give it a chance. Yeah, give it a, give it a chance. Again, my only like I definitely love joke a minute stuff, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, it feel it feels a little too weightless. Mm, yeah, like if I if I were to compare it to Thirty Rock or Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which are also like joke a minute, like they're they're telling also like traditional stories. Mm-hmm. That's true. Whereas whereas this show, like <laughs> one of my favorite jokes from I can't remember if it was the most recent season or the previous one, but um, they're chasing a bad guy down a hospital corridor. Yeah, he runs into the elevator at the end of the hall, and that's when the detective says, "Oh, hold the door," and the villain does. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, so it's like it dives into that kind of like meta anti-humor, where it's like they'll run a joke until it's like logically way past the end point. Well, I, don't, I don't know if that's anti-humor. This we're not. This isn't Tim and Eric we're talking You're about right, here. I guess that's true. But I mean, there's one bit I remember where they're uh, they're like playing flight marshals and they have to stop this killer before he murders someone on the plane mm-hmm. and they discover who it is and they chase him down you know they're chasing him down uh economy class goes through the curtain walks through another economy class 
goes past the curtain, walks down another comedy class, and this goes on for like 14 segments of the plane. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the other cop is pretending to be the pilot, and he goes the other direction, goes past, you know, 14, and then gets reaches the end of the plane before he even touches them. And it's like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this feels like it goes on for like 10 minutes. <laughs> That's not a anti-comedy. That's the that's the Simpsons rake principle. I guess. I guess that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also maybe they're killing time again. It's it's hard to come up with ten episodes a season. <laughs> Especially you got to joke a minute. That's twenty-two minutes times ten. That's two hundred. That's you got to write a lot of jokes. <laughs> two hundred jokes an episode. That's their goal. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it just works. Yep. You know what else just works, John? What? Social media. Of course. And these podcasting, I, I actually say, I'm ve- I've been very happy lately with these podcasting platforms. Mm-hmm. Not only for the ones, not only for the episodes that we're publishing, but all the podcasts that I listen to. Yep. Now, granted, you should not listen to those. No, you should be listening to ours and only ours. Yes, you should be listening to ours. You should be rating ours. Mm-hmm. Giving, give it, a go on Apple Podcasts, not iTunes, Apple Podcasts. Yep. And you can go on Stitcher. You can also rate and review it on Stitcher. Give it, give it a five stars. Mm-hmm. Pound that star button. <laughs> That's not how that works, but... <laughs> and once you're done with that, you can start following us on Twitter, at Aspiring Snobs. Yeah. And you can like our Facebook page, the Aspiring Snobs Podcast Facebook page. I'm on there, too. We're posting all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Well, you you, you, you do a better job of the Twitter than I do with the Facebook page. <laughs> John, no, it's a mystery. Nobody knows who handles what. <laughs> well, now they who do. Who handles what. <laughs> and, you know, you can also leave us a comment, write us an email, at AspiringSnobs, at gmail.com. Absolutely. Yep. You know what they can do? They can write us about the movie we're going to talk about next week. Yes. Next week. If you've stayed, yes, if you stayed on this long, congratulations. Here's here's your present. <laughs> next homework. Week. <laughs> <laughs> next week we'll be talking about Saving Private Ryan, in honor of the anniversary of the D-Day landing. Yes. So join us for that, won't you? Please do. Mm-hmm. And until next time, keep aspiring. <laughs>